0: For this episode, I'm in Sydney at Listener HQ, right beside some studios that I worked in for many years in radio. My guest is on the other side of the pond in America, Charlotte, North Carolina, to be exact. It's a bit of a motorsport hub there and also the hood now for Will Power, who created history in 2018 by becoming the first Aussie to win the greatest spectacle in racing, the Indianapolis 500, a race that was first staged over 100 years ago. Quite a feat. Through incredible determination and perseverance, Power has rightly claimed a spot among some legendary IndyCar stars. After going nail-bitingly close to winning the title on several occasions, he broke through in 2014. Power is the man when it comes to stats around road and street course races, but the numbers underscore deeper, broader talent than that approaching 40 career wins, 70 podiums and more than 50 pole positions. You get a sense in our chat that in his early days, Will really had to prove himself and often to no one but himself. Now he drives for automotive and racing icon Roger Penske and is cemented in the record books, which has enabled him to be more comfortable in his world. He's showing more humour on socials, loves being a dad and in fact enjoys playing drums when he's away from the cockpit. This is one of the most gripping chats that I've had since we launched Rusty's Garage. I'm grateful that Will feels comfortable enough to open up on various topics, including the day that likeable racer Dan Weldon died. Plus, the big decision to turn left from following the path to F1 to trying his luck in the US. Now, that said, you will never take that proud Aussie, that proud Queenslander from Toowoomba out of him. But I wondered if, when it's all said and done, he'd ever base himself back down under.
1: No, I I think America will be home for me for the rest of my life Um, because I married an American girl. I have a a son now. And, uh, um, yeah, I live in North Carolina, live on Lake Norman. It's uh, where a lot of – pretty much all the NASCAR teams are based here. Um, Yeah, my team, Team Penske, is based here. They have the IndyCar team. Uh, and the NASCAR team and the sports, well, what was the sports car team under the same roof. So, um, yeah, I got a very, very used to living away from home. Like it really, do, Australia doesn't, if I go home to Australia, uh, I actually get homesick kind of, I feel like I'm coming back home wow. to here because I've been away for so long. I mean, I left in 2000 and, uh, uh would I leave 2000 end of 2002 you yeah, know went to England for three years um before I came to America and, and I've been here since so um yeah have haven't been haven't lived in Australia for uh yeah we're getting close to 20 years like
0: 18 years crazy do you pinch yourself mate because you've just talked about living in what is a, an American hub of racing I, I've been there it's an amazing part of the world you're a long way from Toowoomba, and much has changed in your life. Pretty cool to think that you've made it.
1: When you look back, it does it does blow your mind when you think about some of the thoughts that you had when I was just working as a canvas goods manufacturer, and I'd be sitting out, and I actually used to smoke, having a cigarette, and thinking about what where I would be when I was age thirty or age thirty five, and. Um, and I, I never ever accepted that I would be just working. I always uh always had in my mind that I would I would be doing something something else I really enjoy, whether, you know, uh, you know, I used to skateboard when I was younger, uh, whether I was gonna be a pro skater or racing was always the thing that I said when I was a kid that I wanted to be as a race car driver. But yeah, I mean looking back at uh when you look at everything you've done and you know how impossible you really felt it was, uh, yeah, it 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 is. It's surreal. It's really is like a a dream come true. Honestly, that's that's how you feel it. it it's um it it's, it's something you would have dreamed of as a kid to be getting paid to drive IndyCars, cars, um, you know, living in America and winning. You know, winning races. Mm. It is surreal, but you know the journey you know the work that's gone into it so it's not surprising in that way Um, you know the thing that becomes to me really evident is that hard work and persistence and study and homework really pay off it's you know no one's different to anyone else in that respect they can all they all have something that they can excel at if you just put the work in and are determined
0: and you have done that mate i i often use the word tenacious, and you are the epitome of that in in my mind. I'm glad that you brought up your your youth. Um, You you grew up in Toowoomba, Darling Downs, region of Queensland, west of Brisbane. There was a great photo you've posted in recent days on Instagram of you as a little tacker, did the Power Boys run amok and make life hard for your mum when you were little? And and was it clearly dad that got you hooked on racing?
1: Uh, it was clearly dad that got us all hooked on racing, no question. <laughs> and he had a he had a Formula Two car um, at the first house we lived in and he'd be working on that thing till, you know, eleven at night, and then they'd probably get whatever they were doing together, whether it's the engine or whatever change or, you know, gear ratios, and they'd start it up and my mother had come down screaming at him to turn it off. The kids are asleep. <laughs> We'd all be excited <laughs> because he started the uh, he started the car
0: up. But so
1: what was that thing powered by? What was it powered by? It was a Judd Golf uh yeah, two yeah. liter mega. Yeah, it would have had um twin webers on as carbies. So yeah, it was it was a real racy sounding engine. Like it would vibrate the floor. I remember that distinctly because <laughs> you know, the garage is right under our bedroom. Um, and it was just so exciting for us like to have a race car in the garage and dad working on it and um, you know being kind of a part of it being a bit of a pest honestly like <laughs> if anything my dad would belt us if anything went missing because he'd know that the bloody as he calls the bloody kids got it <laughs> So yeah I mean we were uh, I mean I was... Me and my older, the next oldest to me, Nick was so we were so into racing. We, what we called it, playing racing. So that's what that's what we did as kids. And uh, yes, we ran a for sure. Like all four of us, with uh, you know uh, my poor old mother having to deal with it while Dad was off racing, or you know he had, had he's running a business at the same time too. So yeah, she. She deserves a medal, man. She really does. Yeah. We all really try to look after her well <laughs> these days because we understand now that we have kids, um, yeah. just one kid, how much work that is. Yeah, you realise that real quick and you think immediately of your mother who had four kids all two years apart. This just nuts.
0: Amazing. First car for you. I want to latch on to the Datsun 1200 and the early part of your racing what color? What power plant? What sort of events? And were you hands-on with it?
1: Uh, yes, I was. I, I, I was hands-on with it. I remember doing a, a change, having to change a gearbox, um, and we'd prep it for the race. That's how my uh, dad made us do everything. You know, when we were racing go-karts as a kid, we, we did all did everything, basically, because he was racing too. Like, my dad's crazy. He would have literally three kids racing and we we're all looking after a custom, then he'd be racing like two classes in, in go-karting. Um, and that's the way it was. So we, we did all, we learned how to do all that stuff. Um, so it just was normal for us. Um, and yes, the dirt track car was a Datsun 1200, um, which the engine, it, would, it had to be stock. You couldn't change anything on it. So it was a 1200. Um, obviously you'd cut the, Muffler off and the pipers, you know, do as much as you can to it, and um, yeah, we it was kind of a cool series. It was uh, called this. It was a dirt track series. Is short circuit racing is what they called it. It was in, in Queensland. Um, you know, there's probably about five or six tracks. It was Mill Marin, Warwick. Uh, there's one in Toowoomba called Echo Valley. Lee Diffie used to actually commentate there Yeah. for the motor, I think was, uh, for the motocross, uh, the motocross track. And then there's the one at Ipswich, which you probably saw when you go to Queensland Raceway. You, you, you probably saw that, uh, uh, that on the left. As you there, come into you, the complex, you, you, yeah. There. You've gone past mm. the go kart track or the drag strip and the go kart track. The next thing was that dirt track, and that was what uh, what I raced in. So it was dirt track road courses. Um, and it was great, really a lot of fun. Um, you know, karting was, was really good for your, you know, being very neat and tidy and, um, lines and understanding racing, basically, um, all the things you learn in karting, you know, uh, uh you know, more about where the grip is and, um, what curves you may use, but the dirt track was car control. Um, you know, and then they, the water truck would come out during a hundred lap race, and it'd go from reasonably grippy with with you know the, it actually gets so packed down it actually lay rubber, which I think any of the guys who race sprint cars would know all about that. But yeah. um, and then the water truck would come and go to literally ice, so <laughs> many different conditions and um, any different sorts of cars you'd race against too, like people rocked up with all sorts of stuff. <laughs> it was it was pretty good, real grassroots racing
0: and ironically mate although it's a world apart from what you now do i would imagine some of the learnings from that um were, were pivotal in kind of setting you up weren't they
1: uh yeah i mean it's just it's it's all it's all a learning curve like you'll take take a little bit from everything that you've done over your career you you, mm-hmm. you know and you'll you'll keep honing it and honing it and yeah i mean that would certainly set you up well for the uh, driving in the wet and just in general car control of something big, you know, go-karts so nimble and tight. And, you know, suddenly when you go into cars, you've got much more weight to deal with. So, um, you know, I think you understand inertia much better when you've raced dirt track and, um, you know, a heavy sedan, uh, cause the matters where in the go-kart, the inertia is not a big deal. It's, it's, uh, the braking zones aren't very long, and it's it's a very nimble little thing. But it's it's unbelievably competitive and great racing go kart. Mm. still, I still I still race go karts uh, um, and enjoy it immensely. I, I love it. It's because it's such pure racing. It's so um, no aerodynamics. It's just uh, uh, and no strategy. It's simply great racecraft and as hard as you can go um, to try win the race.
0: We'll talk more about WPK or willpower carts a little bit later on, because I know that's something you, you've you uh, ventured into in relatively recent time, and that's exciting. But to expand on Formula Ford, which you brought up um, a moment ago, you were kind of underdog back then, weren't you? It was tough, a small band of people, your dad, and you were talking about working hands-on. And the, the, one of the early cars that you had was significantly older than some of the, the others in the field that you are up against, wasn't it?
1: Um, the year that I competed against Will Davison, I drove that Stealth, which was uh, you know, the conversion from a 94, and 95 Van Diemen that Brett Lupton did in, um, yep. over in Western Australia. And, uh, and I actually didn't think it was a worse car than what Will, Will Davison is who I battled for that year. Um, until I drove a 2002 or three Van Diemen and, and then I realized like, wow, these things were a really nice car. So, yeah, I mean, it wasn't it was it wasn't the latest equipment. I don't think I was at a, a massive disadvantage or anything. I think it was a great competitive season mm. and, um, you know, we'll end up winning that championship. But uh, I raced former Ford on and off, you know, for, for a while before I did a full season in... Um, uh, uh, uh in the national series before i was let's say really serious about it um because because it just it was never really it, it, you know we didn't have a path set out uh you know my dad and i i would say when i say we it was my father and i really who he you know he helped me from the very beginning got to a point where i he wasn't doing anything. I would just prepped the car. I'd tow the car. I'd do everything myself. He didn't even come to the races, uh, you know. At one point, but um, um, yeah, I never. It wasn't. Uh, that was something I really noticed with Will Davison when I finally, um, you know, had taken it very seriously. Which was in two thousand and one. I fought Will Davison. but the first year I took it real serious was in two thousand. I raced for Mike Balland in his team in the Spectrum, and that was my first taste of being very professional and thinking that I want to make this something, you know, I want to make it to V8 supercar. Make it a career. Make Mm. it a career. Um, And then, uh, uh, yeah, so then the next year, I thought Will Davison and his family had done it so well. Like it looked like he had a whole career just planned out and it seemed as though they had the funding and everything. And uh, I felt like we were a bit of a mess <laughs> in that respect. We just simply didn't have it laid out in that way. It was just like, let's just try and make the next race. Let's just try and make this mm. season, let alone thinking about you know, trying to go to Europe and race you know, British Formula 3 or Formula Renault or any of that. that wasn't even That didn't even seem like a possibility to me. Uh, at that stage,
0: so what changed in in that you know in that thinking for you then?
1: Really, what changed was in two thousand when I started taking seriously, and I, I was so so determined at that point to to try and make it. As much as I said we're messy in like two thousand one, I really did finish that season with no ride or anywhere to go. But I met Graham Watson. Graham Watson called me, gave me a test, and because we didn't really have the money to do Formula Holden or anything like that, which was you know really a dream for me to try do that, um, and Graham gave me a test and he did it for free uh, at Wakefield Park. It was, oh man the car was so awesome to drive, yeah, just such a blast. Like from after doing Formula Ford, getting to drive a Formula Holden with a you know, three hundred over three hundred horsepower and downforce and unbelievable brakes. It just was after that t- test I was so pumped and um. So then we worked a pretty good deal out with Graham. Like I mean, he gave me a great deal. As far as um, I had some inheritance from my uncle, it was like seventy thousand dollars, and I spent that on that season. Wow! And that got me through that season. And at the same time, I met is uh, a, a, a still a great friend of mine, uh, Bevan Carrick, who you know was just a motorsport enthusiast. You know, older guy had a um, you know he was probably in his fifties at that point had a business called cool temp and he had a former three car and he wanted me to come test it at queensland raceway and i tested it and gave him good feedback and you know told him you need to open the diff up and this and that and we got it and he's like he was really impressed he said oh well we can go down and do a, a race i think it might have been the opening race at oran park this is the same year i got the ride with um Graham watson so I had Formula Holden and Formula Three at the same time. So I was getting, I was getting a lot of miles uh, in open wheel cars with wings. And we went down to Iron Park after doing, I think, the f- first couple of races in Formula Holden. And in an older uh, Formula Three car, it was a '97 model. Everyone had uh, 2001 models at that point. All the guys at the front, and we we destroyed the field. Run, you know, pole both races. You know, know, on pole, won both races, led every lap, um, and and then did the same the next race, which was uh, what was it? Might have been Wakefield Park or something. So, and then I started meeting some people that started to take interest that had the money to send me overseas and do a test and start, you know, cracking that door open. Um, So it was just really you know I wouldn't say circumstance but uh the fact that I had done so well in Formula four Graham Watson called me yeah and Bevan Carrick had watched me and wanted me to test his car and did well in that so then he gave me some races and then I met some people that could help me to get overseas and uh you know that's how that started and during that year I actually uh, went with Graham Watson with me and we went over and did a test to buy a car for one of the guys at um was going to put money in um, test a Formula Three, and if it was good, and I said it was good, he was going to buy it and bring it back to Australia. And um, and that, that that test was with uh, actually Diamond Racing, so that was the first taste of driving anything overseas. Was uh, at the end of two thousand and two.
0: And were you hooked at this point, mate? Like you 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 know the dream of potentially Formula One or something like that. Um, in Europe, must have seemed a bit more of a of a reality now. And I, I love the memories you've just shared mm. of both Formula Three and Formula Holden because they have revitalised, if you like, down here now the Australian Drivers Championship or the Gold Star, which you you know, I mean your name is in the record books alongside some of those yeah. those people. You know, having having done that, mate, is, was a very cool tick before you made that next step, wasn't it?
1: It was to win the Gold Star because my father competed for the Gold Star. So, hmm. you know, when you're a kid, that is, a, seemed as a really big deal to me, which it was. And, um, uh, it was, a, it was the first championship I'd ever, ever won. And it felt, uh, yeah, it was fantastic. And I had my dad there the day I won it in Winton and it was just a, a, a really cool, a great season. Um, you know, and it's kind of takes me back to my childhood when my brother and I would play racing and talk about racing guys like Graham Watson because that's, I mean, my dad raced Graham Watson, Arthur Abrahams, Peter Glover, Richard Davison, um, all these guys that are still kind of, because, you know, as you know, when you have a hero as a kid, they remain your hero, this big figure in your mind. So it was Really cool to race for Graham Watson and um, and win a championship there at the Gold Star. Uh, and meet a lot of the people I used to hear my dad talk about in the paddock when I was a kid. A lot of the guys that dad would come home and he was talking about this guy and that guy and um, and you'd see him around the paddock. Uh, uh, so that was, yeah, pretty pretty cool, pretty cool to win the Gold Star. The Gold Star was the third oldest continuously awarded title in Australian motorsport, with only the Australian Grand Prix and the Australian Hill Climb Championship having a longer uninterrupted history.
0: You talked before about, about going overseas and kind of opening the door for the first time. How big a step was that? How hard was that? And were there moments of, of massive doubt where you thought this is just not going to pan out?
1: There was... Always doubt. I just there just was because of the situation. But yeah, it was a massive step to just, you know, um we did the first test there. i got to recall how that all worked out. We did the first test, which I did very well in. Um it's just kind of like a club open data test on the track, but they had lap times from uh, you know, previously testing other formula three drives and guys there. So they knew what was fast and I was, you know, very quick there. Like I think I was like mm-hmm. under the lap record for that short track at Silverstone. I was at Silverstone, um, so you know that got you know a couple of guys back in Australia with, with good money excited, um, and and so, and my dad, my dad actually sold. He had he had a business, Bob Power Canvas, and behind that business he had a couple of houses, and he sold those two houses to get hundred thousand dollars. To fund me. And I felt, you know, a massive kind of pressure and it, guilt mm, kind mm. of that, oh man, that's mm. like, you know, dad's savings. Like he's, you know, putting a lot on the line for me to succeed. Mm. And it's kind of a lot, you know, it is a long shot. It's tough. Um, but anyway, we, we I went over there and um, we did a deal with Rolt. Everyone had Dolaris. We mm-hmm. went with a group that built. Um, a, a Rolt they called it a Rolt but it wasn't Ron Toranac it was you know I think someone had bought, bought the rights and then designed a car and um, and we kind of went that way because Nelson Piquet Jr at the time had been running it in Brazil and done reasonably well and they were saying well he's probably going to run it which he didn't he came over and ran a Delara, so we were the only Rolt in the field and first race qualified like 28th out of 30 I reckon or something like that <sighs> just nowhere Um, and that went on for, God, I want to say we did six races like that. And then literally, I think we ran out of money or it said, we're not wasting any more of our money on this. It's, it's a waste of time. Mm So I did a really good deal with Fortech. I went around to a few different teams at that time. You could race Formula three, which was the open class. And they actually had in the field B class, which was year old cars. Mm -hmm. So I even talked to a couple of those teams, but that would have been just a total waste of time. Um, so I went to Fortech and um, did a good deal with those guys, and the, uh, and got like the rest of the season testing or, like for a, like, I think I remember it was like a hundred thousand pounds, which was a really good deal at the time. Yeah, um, and so that uh, that that like my first race, I think I qualified fifth straight away, like right on the pace, as quick as my teammate. Um, and and you know then was competitive. I think it finished on the podium, and um, very, went very well for the second half of the last group of those races, and got a lot of testing and time. And um, uh, and then the next year I ended up with Alan Docking, which was a single car team. And honestly, that was
0: mm-hmm.
1: probably not the best situation. It was you know you're racing against like Carlin, who had four cars, and Fortec had two cars, and um, yeah some big teams and we simply well, we did well like i qualify on the front mm. often and was running at the front often but it was um uh, not ideal having not having a teammate in that situation uh, and, and yeah it was really at the end of that season which was 2000 and uh, what was that 2004 i was done i was like yep um, the only kind of good thing about that season was I was going to get a test at the end of the year, no matter what, with uh, Minardi in F1, mm-hmm. myself and Will Davison. So um, I, the, the next part of that story is so I finished that season with nothing and really certainly had no money to do anything. I actually went into debt with Alan Docking to get that season, Wow! signed a contract with him that I would pay him back. Um, and I had that F1 test coming up, and I thought, well, it'd be pretty smart to spend. uh, I think I had to get four thousand dollars to do a test in F3000 at the track. I'd be testing the Minardi, and that was with a team called Draco, yes, Draco or Draco, which was a really good team um, in F3000. And they were testing four drivers that day. They didn't really know who I was and thought I was a bit of a disaster because I was trying to call him to get directions um, (laughs) when I organized that test. And I'm like, look at the map. He goes, can you see this? And I was like, can you see this name? I said, I cannot see it. I'm like searching on this map that I got from the rent car place. And I'm like, and like the guy must have thought I was an idiot. And then after he hung up, I turned it over. It's like, oh, it's a two-sided map. (laughs) So the map was on the back. And. And I was like, and he even said it at some point. He goes, you're a complete, uh, you know, after the test, you're like a real disaster. But anyway, I did the, did the test and they were testing four drivers, including me that day. Um, I don't know what number I was when I went in, but I mean, I was a second quicker than all the guys and, that, and they were the guys. Okay. And I was just there to learn the track. That's mm. all I wanted to do. I wasn't really thinking of anything else, but learn the track for the Formula One test. And they're like amazed at the speed they were. They really were because the three other drivers they were testing were for that seat, for um, which F three thousand was becoming World Series by oh, Renault hmm. uh, the next next year. Um, so it was the testing guys for that seat, and they were like really like blown away um, at at the speed to you know just destroy these other guys and kind of just left that test and didn't like you know i think they were they would have been asking me that test how much money do you have and i was like legitimately i have none hmm. but i'm sure they've been used to that over the years of you know being a team trying to find money to go racing of drivers saying they have no money but they do you know have some money that's trying to get a good deal but i legitimately had yeah, zero money wow um and and so i was running out of my visa I did the Minardi test and they actually even got feedback from that, that Will Davison and myself were really quick. We were, we were as quick as a guy in the Minardi uh, that had been testing for the last day. Hmm. Like We got in there and got to their pace. I kind of like, who are these two Australian guys <laughs> able hmm. to like, you know, and I, and I tell you, you know, some of that speed would have been from Will and I desperately trying to be faster than each other, Surely. like desperately. Yeah. Um, uh, but we actually ended up like, oh, I, I have to say, like, we did exactly the same time, basically. It was like hundreds apart or something. But um, so they, because they were Italian and, and they had a shop very close to the Nardi, they obviously all know each other and they heard about that too. So uh, I was back in England and, um, and I think they called me and said, well, there's another test at Paul Ricard. It's with the new, uh, you know, Renault car. Yeah. And I said, I, I I can't do it. I have no money. I'm and I'm running out of my visa, and I have to go back to Australia. So you know, if you guys want me to test, you know, you're going to have to tell me now um, because I'm going back to Australia. And I I can't. You know, I'm not I'm not going to afford to fly back. So they probably didn't believe me or whatever. I went back to Australia, resigned myself to just going back to work, Um, and a couple of weeks later. That test must have been in, I can't remember, it was like a month or something. So it was, in, it was in between the time I left from England and I went back to Australia. I remember it had been a couple of weeks and they called me on my mm. home number um, and said, you know, we really wanted you to come back and test. I'm like, look, I, I have no money. I'm telling you, I don't. And I think they believed me at that point because I really did just leave England and go. Mm. Um, so they said, all right. If uh, you get over here, you can sign a contract with us, and um, it means that you can't go to any other team. And then we'll pay for your test. Mega. So we went there, and they were testing other drivers that day too. And um, yeah. I had—I think I was P two. Robert Kubica was P one. I think Alvaro of Alvaro Parente was there, like a lot of good drivers. Um, so I was right up there, and with minimal time. Um, you know, these other teams had drivers that uh, had already signed, so they got the full two days of testing. I just got a portion of one day, mm. um, and uh, and once again, they were very impressed. Um, and then it was just, oh man, it was a sh- it was very tough because what I needed to find for that was two hundred and fifty. Like to do a season in that series was six hundred thousand euros and they said we'll do a deal for you for 200 or 200 250 and then i you know i was dealing with some guys and said you know that were promising the money that didn't have it so it was becoming there was a bit of tension between myself and Draco mm. the team because they wanted to you know get a deal done and and be sure that I was good for the money and i it just kept dragging on and on and on and we somewhat had a bit of a falling out But I still had a contract with those guys because I tested them. And it would be £20,000, if I remember correctly, to get out of that contract. In the meantime, my girlfriend back in England, Kerry Fenwick, who was working for Mark Mark Webber, was kind of upset that I wouldn't be coming back. And um, I think Anne Neal and Mark said, Why don't you call Carlin? They've got a, you know, they're starting a, a former World Series by Renault team. Um, just call them she's like we've got no money and then they kind of said well we'll we'll back you um, you know and and for the first half of the season and then you know you do well enough we can just find the money so that's how that all started I love it so I didn't talk to Draco again like I kind of just like they knew I had a contract with them and they really wanted me as a driver I know but they were just they were tough to get on you know, somewhat playing games and So I just turned up to, I think the first test again was, uh, might have been Barcelona. I turned up to Barcelona with Carlin and was P1, like legitimately P1 of the whole field. And they were there testing. I remember Johnny Reeve from New Zealand was there testing with Draco. So (laughs) then obviously the legal proceedings started after they saw that um, because I had a contract with them. Mm. Um, and it was it was leading up, so we did all the testing with Carl and, and I was oh, yeah very quick all the way through. I had a great engineer, Daniela Rossi, still around, um, and had Draco, you know, nipping at my heels with legal proceedings, and you know, uh, I can't remember
0: um, what they had sent me, but overwhelming, overwhelming for a young bloke, mate.
1: It was just like uh, <sighs> another, you know. 20,000 pounds to get there. I just do not have the money to pay this, to get out of it. But I've got this great deal with Carlin that Mark Weber's backed. And, um, you know, it's, <laughs> so we went to the first race and Trev Carlin, um, I think it was Trev Carlin and his, there's another guy, what's his name, Steve, who worked there. They helped me on the case. Um, and and Nikki Pastorelli, who was managed by Draco, was testing for Midland F1, and uh, Trevor Carlin was running Midland F1. So he did a deal with Draco. Said, "Look, drop the case, and we got out of it for like two thousand bucks for the seat or something, and <laughs> we'll give Nikki Pastorelli some more straight line testing." And uh, so that's how that deal got resolved. Um, yeah, it was a stressful time. That was great. That was really great. I still didn't have the budget to finish the season though, uh, with Carlin. But that all started, and we were really quick. And
0: as you, as you and Robert Kubica going toe to toe, weren't you?
1: Yes, it was. It was myself and Robert Kubica, and I got it was coming. Like I remember Robert saying to me, "Oh, are you coming?" Because I kept edging closer to him in the championship. And then we had the disastrous wet weekends, you could say. One was at Oschersleben in Germany. And it was the first wet race. Um, and basically, apparently, the year before, to get the w- wet tires to work, you had to pump them up like massive pressure, which is kind of counterintuitive. <laughs> like anything that I've done, the wet now, it's just, yes. you just don't do that. But that's what they did. Mm. And that's what we were doing. Um, and, you know, I crashed and I think I was like leading at Oshersleben or, you know, right there. Um, and it qualified, I can't remember, may have qualified on pole, but crashed out in the wet, went wet, and we put those wets on. Um, uh, one race, the wheel gun got stuck and it just ruined the. I think we had to stop, we couldn't get the wheel nut off in uh, the pit stop. Mm. Um, then the next weekend at Donington was fully wet, uh, all the way through practice qualifying. Um, and we just, Like, what's going on? Like, there's guys up the front that, you know, we usually beat them. It's like a 30-car field, and we were way back. Like, normally we're running top five every time. Mm. Um, And Andy Zuber, who was my teammate, you know, I think, I can't remember if Trev was there, but he said, just let the bloody tires down. Because I remember asking my engineer, are you sure that we should be running, you know, what? I think it was like 30 PSI on these bloody tires. Are you sure? And he said, yes, that's how you had to run them. He even called Adrian Burgess. Who had been running? He called Adrian Burgess, who was at Spa uh, working for Jordan F1, I believe, and said, What about these wet, you know? You should, double check. Yeah. And, and Adrian, I think, had been running um, those cars, you know, a couple of years before. So he's like, Yeah, that's what you got to run. So they let Andy's tires, like, you know, chunk out and immediately, boom, way quicker. I'm like, Ah. So yeah, it was too late then, kind of qualified way back but, but uh, we found what the problem was and that really at that point I had been getting calls from Derek Walker to come to the States come and test an Indy mm. car the champ car yeah, yeah. so um, not having the money to continue and then really getting those two weekends just ruin the championship and not having a chance to win I was like why you know I, I can go test the champ car which I mm-hmm. did and it was just an amazing feeling that horsepower and everything in those champ cars. And to think that I would get paid for that versus having to pay, you know, you know, it's pretty clear what I needed to do. So, you know, I had to call Trev and say, sorry, I don't have the money. And he wasn't all that happy about that. Um, to have to go try find another driver to fill that seat. But that was just the situation it was. Um, and at that point I started pursuing the, uh, the team Australia, um, although they were very keen to get an Australian driver in there that could do well for them, and gave me a test and I did really well. Um, and then they said, "Well, we can, you can race at the the uh, first the uh, Australian Indy race
0: on the Gold Coast." Um, yeah, uh,
1: yeah. I, and I really, at that point, I'd only had that test at Portland. There was quite a bit of time in between. I was kind of like I was saying to Derek Walker, said so like." you know, I'm, I have no experience in these cars. You're going to put me straight in a race. You know, can, can we do a test somewhere? And we just, they really didn't have the car together and they couldn't. So I just turned up to that and kind of hope, you know, did my absolute best to, you know, make it a good weekend, which it really was, I think, mm. a real taste. And then the next, then actually it was the last two races to do Mexico City as well uh, and did really well in that race um, and practice and so on was Quite fast, and um, I think I'd already signed the contract with those guys at that point to do it. It was a three-year contract. I'm pretty sure it was a three-year contract. I'd already signed with Team Australia at that point, so I think I felt pretty comfortable um, and happy to be there because I was going to be paid to drive a bloody champ car, which is just mm. amazing, amazing, yeah, <laughs> amazing. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the start of that. A- at the same time, I was. Uh, same time racing A1GP, those guys that was all, all starting, and there's a heap of money going to it. And it was as a driver, you were getting paid 20 grand a, a, a race. race or maybe yeah. to, to win, or I think it's 200 grand to win, and you got 10% of it. Um, I think I finished second to PK, qualified right at the front of that. Uh, Alan Jones was there, and a bunch of other guys, and um, there was. What do we have a uh, Christian Jones? Was there at that first weekend at Brands Hatch? Like, this was all going on while I was had signed for Team Australia, um, champ car, and there was Team Australia A1 GP. And uh, I uh, <laughs> so kind of thinking you can make some really good money here, yeah. So, I did that first race, which is uh, you know, very like the whole promoter of the series and everything did a great job. Like they put a lot of money into that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, did really well that weekend. And there was a lot of drivers lining up. I remember Will Davison uh, was lining up. There was a test thrown in there somewhere where we all turned up, Peter Hackett, Will Davison, uh, Christian Jones, um, and myself and kind of vying for that seat. And then the first race came and I think Christian Jones was there and, and myself, Will couldn't do it for some... I couldn't remember. He may have been heading down the V8 supercar track at that point. Okay. Um, and Christian took some of my practice up. I thought that was ridiculous. I'm like, come on, like, You know, we want to do well here. You give me... Yeah. You should be giving... Yeah, if you guys are serious, should do that. There's some other Aussie there too that was trying to get the see... I can't remember who it was. But anyway, I think we... I may have qualified. I qualified right at the front for that. May have qualified uh, on pole, the second, in the top four anyway, uh, and did really well. Finished second, and Alan Jones was really happy about that because it's kind of like at that point. I just remember seeing him and his wife, like really stoked that we did well, and it's it's good for him financially and um, and for the team for Australia and yeah. then, and Australia. And then I got a call from. Uh, Derek Walker saying, um, or Craig Gore, I can't remember, telling me you can't do it. They, they'd seen it on TV. And he said, we don't want you driving for that Team Australia. So I had to tell those guys which were going to the next mm. race and they were massively disappointed. So I said, sorry, I can't do it. I've got a contract with Team Australia. in the mm. Champ Car Team Australia and I can't. Race for you guys, uh, which was massively disappointing for me because it was just more miles in a bloody open wheel car, and yeah, you absolutely. were getting paid.
0: Um, and it was a cool, cool series too. Yeah, and clearly, your career is turning here. It's it's opening the doors to yeah. to America and what would be a really successful chunk of your life. Can we wrap up the yeah. European thing just quickly with a couple of things? With a couple of things, listeners will be intrigued. Firstly, about the Minardi test. Tell us what it was like for a young man to finally drive an F1 car. You're there on the day with your good mate, Will Davison, the pair of you going, going toe-to-toe in this car. I mean, that's it wasn't a, a pointy end Formula One car in terms of the field, but the fact that you were driving one was, was a massive thing.
1: It absolutely blew me away, um, the horsepower. It just – because I'd only – I'd driven um, the F3000 car, uh, which, you know felt pretty quick, and before that, just F three, you know, a lot of F three the year, that that during that year, but the Formula One cars, you drove out of the pits, know yeah, I'm like uh, putting the throttle down a bit. I'm like, you know, I'm not seeing any shift flash. What the hell? Then I just go and suddenly it just keeps revving like to whatever they rev to, 18 grand, and it's just nuts, man, like nuts <laughs> is the feeling, like just kicked you in the ass, like the the amount of power of, I mean, from what I had been driving to that just blew me away. Just an amazing feeling. I really
0: was. Keep going. Go, bra- braking, arrow. yeah.
1: The arrow wasn't like crazy because there was no massively fast corners, but the braking, like how late you could brake with confidence, no locking up. Yeah, the middle of the corner wasn't like a heap of grip, but just getting on that throttle with traction control, I actually thought to myself like how could you even drive this thing without traction control? Like I couldn't imagine like trying to drive it without traction control because it was naturally aspirated 850 horsepower in something that weighed what would you say 600 kilos. Crazy. I mean just insane. Mm. Uh, yeah, it was just it was it was amazing. It really was the braking, the acceleration though. Acceleration through all those gears. I remember doing that tests that i said with carlin after that just felt like nothing (laughs) like after you did that everything Everything (laughs) felt so slow um but then you know the champ car also was equally pretty cool because it it kept just going as well it was Mm. like a you know it was turbo so you didn't have that massive torque you had a bit of turbo lag but the top end was as you know it's just like the Minardi, but the Minardi, the torque and the traction control and the speed, the weight, man, that, yeah, it was, was something else. That is something, you know, I'll never forget about. I remember just talking about it a lot over that whole Christmas. It just had blown me away so much. It was really cool.
0: Very great, you know, for a, an aspiring racer. That's a massive um, box to tick. In the, midst, yeah. in the midst of all this and, and the, the, Hardship of having no money and trying to stitch a deal together. There are two things I want to I want to touch on. You mentioned Mark Webber and Anne. We'll get to them in a second. But a couple of journo colleagues of mine, Mark Lindenning and and uh, Stephen Otley, I, I think have a, a a fun story. And you'll be able to correct me if I have the recollection of it wrong. But at one point, one of them I think rang you to talk about where you were at and how you were going and. In the space of, of recording this phone interview, you went from saying, I quit, I'm out, I'm done, this is too hard, da 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 and, and by the end of the conversation, you were back, weren't you? I mean, it was that sort of roller coaster ride that you were going through.
1: Yeah, no, I, I used to have some pretty you know, I'm pretty emotionally was a roller coaster sort of guy. Still am like just that sort of person, but um, Oh, yeah, I could imagine. I can't remember the exact phone call, but I'm sure that happened. I'm sure that happened. <laughs> I was all, like so desperately wanting to make it, though, like so desperately. And then you'd see these kids that had it so easy. You had, you know, they just had, they'd just rock up in a bloody BMW. And, you know, I was struggling to pay rent, had to borrow a car. And, you know, they were with the best team, Carlin, and, and did all the testing. It just was, I so desperately wanted not that, but to make it, and uh, uh, yeah. So that's that's some of the emotion would come out in those in, uh, when I'd speak to those journo's, uh, you know, Mark and uh, Stephen Otley, yeah. yeah, they were great guys. Actually, still Mark Glendening lives and uh, lives over here. I see him at some IndyCar races. Really,
0: really good guy. Cool. Hey, so how did the conversation with Mark and Anne play out? Because, you know, he'd been down the Formula One path. They, they knew that landscape very well. I would imagine there was probably a, a want, if at all possible, to keep you steered towards Europe, but this opportunity had emerged in America. So how did that all all play out for you guys?
1: Uh, when I got the offer to go yeah. Champ Car, to, yeah, yeah, was, I, yeah, I do actually remember the conversation. Um, I was as myself and Carrie and uh, Mark and Andy were just, um, yeah, you know, they, they were totally understanding at that point because it was either find a million dollars to go race GP two at the time, crazy. or get paid to race Champ Car. Mm. Uh, and it was just such an obvious thing. It was just such an obvious answer. You know, at some point, you're going to have to realize that, you know, to, to get to Formula One, you got to have some serious backing and and politically be in the right position mm. because you need a manufacturer or a spot. It, it's just, it seemed, it seemed like such a struggle it was a struggle up to that point but then to go and then again find another million dollars in a series that had just started and you don't even know what team was good or man and I saw some disaster you know I think about some of the disaster stories you saw of that when you know, the mm. gearboxes weren't working and they had issues with the brakes imagine being the guy who struggled to get that you know someone like me and you just wasted it away. Yeah, and didn't take the champ car, right? So it was so obvious, and yeah, I, I remember, yeah, they were totally like, yes, you should take this, awesome, and uh, you know it was a, the right move because you're going to get start paying off your debts and uh, go, go forward. Yeah.
0: Yes. At the end of part one of my podcast with Indy 500 winner Will Power. If you're driving and you've got time now, hit the gas on part two. It's in the Rusty's Garage library, ready to be fired up whenever you are. The discussion around a massive crash at Las Vegas in 2011 is captivating, I promise you. Plus, breaking through after going so close to winning the IndyCar title. And finally getting to drink that winner's milk at Indianapolis, the first Aussie in the race's 100-year history to do it. And he puts you in the driver's seat to understand why going round in circles is way harder than most in the general public realise. Listener.